This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, everyone was kung fu fighting, martial arts as a storytelling tool in speculative fiction. You can blame Madeline for that title, everyone. You can totally blame me for that <laughs> title. In fact, I said, you do realise, Jules, that if we talk about this, that we do need to have everyone was kung fu fighting. And Jules went, oh! <laughs> yes, I did, but I allowed it. <laughs> It was just flashbacks to being part of Abris with University Karate Club and every Thursday night was social night and we, we'd go out and every Thursday night they would play that and the entire karate club would get up and dance. <laughs> it wasn't optional, okay? <laughs> um, so, why are we doing this episode? I, I kind of, I brought this episode up. Both Jules and I have martial arts backgrounds. Yep. Um, well, we we I mean we've both got multiple combative backgrounds in that we've both done combative sports and martial arts and things like that, um, and obviously we've talked about fight scenes in relation to action and tension and story structure before, um, but I kind of wanted to shift the focus a little bit and and sort of look at something a little bit different. So instead of looking at fight scenes, fight scenes in terms of what they add to the story i wanted to kind of look at them as just look at them themselves as their own self-contained stories within within the story itself yeah and i think that's the interesting thing because we sort of say fight scenes and Mm. it's used as an umbrella term for any scene containing violence Mm. and that's simply not the case um a really well done fight scene is generally more apparent where where it's usually a little bit more equal or at least the the person fighting has some sort of you know um either experience or resilience and is able to do 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 something back it's not just something violent is happening um and yeah they are are self-contained stories within their own right and we'll, we'll go into that but it's most apparent when you have the highly precise and choreographed martial arts type scenes which yeah. have moved out of the 60s and 70s kung fu films and, and into everything from the Avengers to, um, you know, science fiction. Yeah. The, it, I mean, they were just so popular. I guess that's part of what I wanted to... I should just give a little bit of background. The reason I actually I, I brought this episode up is, as I mentioned in previous weeks, I watched Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings and I was so blown away by the choreography in it because it was very reminiscent of old martial arts kung fu movies. Um, They really, it was the way that they filmed it, I think, um, and we'll talk more about that later on. Um, But I was just kind of so blown away by it that that's sort of really what inspired this episode. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I guess, you know, we've got a. why are these fight scenes, why are fight scenes so, you know, loved? What What's so endearing about them that we, we've pretty much got them in pretty much everything now? Um, I think there are several reasons. Um, I think one of the reasons is obviously that 
just from a very physical standpoint, um, you know, it's these very dazzling displays of athleticism. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we also have to, in talking about the choreographed fight scenes, they are mm. their character in action, so their character mm. interactions as well. Yeah. Um, and often quite an important one, they tell you something about the characters in the, in the way that they do it and, and how they, they interact with each other, even through, even without words, even through violence. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's not something we normally dissect as separate to the main plot, but a really good, well-choreographed fight scene is often a self-contained mini-story, as we've said. Mm. And I think, actually, that's probably one of the main things which separates like a an act, a really good fight scene from just a uh, just a regular action sequence which is that you know a regular action sequence is just hey look at how strong they are kind of thing but a really good fight scene has got all of this character within it it you you can see a lot not just in terms of the style but the whole way that sort of the whole way they move the whole way they interact um i mean I, it's probably it's one of the reasons i think i love particularly jackie chan fight yeah. scenes the way that he because he's got such a very particular style you know um and it, it's like for instance so many of his characters have that awkward sort of uh, i don't really want to be doing this so i'll kind of try to run away and he'll just use whatever's at hand to sort of make it work yeah um and there's just so much of the character in that there's so much of the situation it feels it's comedic but it's also you know exciting and full of life and it just it doesn't feel choreographed it feels very real at the same time as being very beautifully shot so i guess we should probably look into all of this in a little bit more depth so um I guess we should probably actually start with a very brief, unauthorised history of Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's beyond the scope of our particular episode here to really mm. go into the, the history of martial arts and every mm. culture has its own martial art, etc. Yeah. Um, but and even the history of Kung Fu, because that is really, really intense. Yeah. Um, but just a, a little brief uh, look at Kung Fu. For example, the original meaning of Kung Fu or, or Gong Fu, as it, as it originally was, referred to any practice requiring study time discipline precision patience and dedication it mm. was not specifically about martial arts the martial arts we know as kung fu would be called things like wushu or um, there are various other names for it mm. um, but it would have been the kung fu practice of wushu as yeah. in that the precision and patience practice of that particular martial art yeah um, I think that's the other thing is there are so many different types. Um, people just think, oh, it's kung fu, and therefore that's it's just that. No, it's it's even um, even if we're just looking at kung fu in terms of meaning martial arts, there are so many strands, and sometimes they play on the idea like ah, oh, the style of the tiger, the style of the etc. Um, you yeah. really, really do have to appreciate that this is it's it's such an umbrella term definitely i mean animal form kung fu is a separate style in and of itself yeah. and while some of the other styles embrace parts of animal form kung fu mm. i'm using the term very lightly there but yeah probably because i can't really pronounce the chinese <laughs> sorry guys yeah. 
Um, but you know, they're they're separate and they have their own lineage as well. And I think that's the thing because it's been practiced for hundreds, even thousands of years in some instances, or you know, allegedly, the mm-hmm. lineage is incredibly important. Um, yeah. Lineage is really important in karate as well. So, for yeah. example, um, Gojuru, which is my main form of karate, um, originally came from Okinawa and it branched out of them being occupied by the Japanese and they weren't allowed weapons and things. So a lot of traditional Okinawan weaponry that I now can and do use um, in, in terms of practice. I don't like regularly bust out a spear and turtle shell or anything. <laughs> or do you? <laughs> or do, well, if I do, I'm not going to admit to it on a podcast. Um, side daggers, things like that. Um, which, you know, are great fun to use and they're, they're great training tools and things. But they came out of farming and fishing implements because they weren't allowed to carry weapons. They weren't allowed to carry swords. The Japanese weren't having that. And mm. the practice of um, Gojiru, the hand-to-hand combat side of things, Gojiru literally means hard soft style. I mean, it comes from Nahate, um, which is another style of it. And it, uh, Wadaru is roughly around the same era time-wise. And yeah. all three of those came out of a combination of the Okinawan monk fist boxing, so from the temples in Okinawa, mm-hmm. and uh, white crane, Fuzhou white crane kung fu, which came from the Fuzhou mountains in China. Yeah. So that that's the lineage. And if you trace that even further back, the white crane kung fu comes from something much older. Mm. Um, if we're talking pure kung fu, we're we're looking at things like I have done Wing Chun, which comes from Yan Wing Chun, who mm-hmm. was a nun. Uh, during the, I want to say the 12th century, but I could be slightly off on my dates there, and at at that particular time as a woman she was told, well, you're not allowed to practice Kung Fu but she proved she could master the form, so they allowed her an abbreviated form of the Mm. Kung Fu taught in that region, and it became known as her style Mm. Um, so there there are so many many styles, and it's a little bit like, if you like ballet, but you don't really know much about it, you wouldn't necessarily know that there's the French school of ballet and the Russian school of ballet, and they're not the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to... This is the other thing, is that Kung Fu and Karate and stuff like that as well, obviously there is... They these things bleed into one another, particularly in the sort of the, the the newer sort of styles which have been developed and new styles of karate. I know at the very least, you know they're still being developed. Um, I mean, karate or karate means empty-handed. Um, so, particularly when originally the word would be regarding fighting empty-handed, and as Jules said, you know it used to also be that uh, when these people weren't allowed weapons um, because of occupations or things along those lines, they would actually learn and they would practice movements for those weapons, but without the weapons in their hands as well. Like there are moves in karate where you're like, what does this move mean? And this move is you're drawing your sword. And what they would do is they would do it in the form of kata, which looks like a dance. So they'd be practicing fighting, but it would just look like a like a ritualistic dance instead. And that's how they could get away with it, um, which sort of has given way to things like, um, oh, what's it called when you see, it's usually women sort of on beaches moving very slowly. What's what? it called? <laughs> Tai Tai no. Oh, I don't know because Tai Chi is actually part of Kung Fu. It's yeah. part that got splintered off. Yeah, and Qigong exactly. As well. 
Yeah, and the, but you see it being moved soon, and you're like, oh, how beautiful. And they're like, and now we're breaking the arm, and now we're taking off the head. You know, it's it's just, you know, it's slow, but that's what's happening. Um, but, I mean, the style that I learned in um, was washinkai. Now, washinkai is a combination of wataru and shotokan, um, created by Sensei Thompson. Um, and it was basically, you know, this man who had trained under the heirs of, of Wataru and Shotokan, who both of them originally trained under Wataru. I believe it was the style of Wataru, and it splintered off into these two separate ones. And Washinkai is kind of like the idea of, of bringing both both teachings back together again to create a sort of a revigorated but a revigorated version of the original Wataru. Yeah, I um, mean all karate originates from Okinawa because yeah. what happened was the Japanese occupied. So the Okinawans kind of went, We've got to be sneaky about this and then yeah. the Japanese could have hipped to what they were going on and thought, actually this is pretty good. Let's let's take it back, let's abbreviate it and teach it to our troops, which is where you got Shotokan from. Mm, so yeah. because a really in depth understanding of proper Okinawan karate takes about ten years to master. Yeah. Exactly. And that's to get you to first apprentice level. Whereas Shotokan, and this is not a slight against Shotokan, I have a black belt in Shotokan as well, mm. um, is quicker to master and slightly less punishing on your body in many ways. So it was a good thing to teach the troops. It's like learning the alphabet and learning simple phrases and things so you can get by in another country. So it could be taught to many, many people at once. Mm. And they were less likely to injure themselves doing it, which is also good if you want your troops to stay fighting fit. But they yeah. would still have a certain amount of skill for basic hand-to-hand combat and things. Yeah. Um, which is obviously where you get show to come from, which is why when I came from Gojuru, I went to university and there was nothing but Shotokan. So I went to learn Shotokan and was dismayed to find that Shotokan was basically Gojuru inside out and back to front. So imagine learning a language and then going to another country and finding that the syntax and the grammar was completely different. But yeah. you had the words, <laughs> but you had the words. Yeah, the words. Um, so I struggled for years to then put everything back into the right place. Then I left university, went back, went back to go Jeru, and suddenly I was learning everything inside out and back to front again. So I was yeah. much, much quicker picking it up the second time round because I'd already taught my brain to do that trick. And I yeah. think in some ways I ended up with a more complete understanding of karate and martial arts in general because I was willing to see the value in both. There's a lot yeah. of snobbery in martial arts, unfortunately. I think I think there is. It's quite interesting as well, though, because you know, from the perspective of <laughs> the one thing I'd always be able to to tell is like, ah, oh, um, what style is it? Look at the stances. How low are they going? <laughs> that's low. That's low. Okay, we. <laughs> it's the box stance. The box stance gives it away almost every time. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's the funny thing, because um, horse riding stance and Shotokan, your feet are pointing forwards, so you yeah. keep it actually, whereas um, horse riding stance in, in Gojuru is your feet are pointing out a 45 degree angle. Yeah, which and, makes more sense to me, but, Which, you know, you know makes more sense. Shotokan's very punishing on the knees, Sh- Gojuru yeah. is very punishing on the hips, so really it's pick the joint. Yeah. <laughs> which one do you need less? <laughs> which one do you need less? Um, and I can I can easily pick the difference between Wadaru and, and Gojuru because Wadaru does something very peculiar with the blocks. The angles are less extreme. Mm. 
I've done a little bit of wado as well. Yeah. Um, I've done many. I've done 13 martial arts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm I'm usually pretty good at going, hmm, that's from that, that's from that kind of thing. Yeah. It's, um, but this is the thing I think that sort of comes down to the crux of it. When you look at the history of martial arts, the most amazing thing is to, is to recognise that these forms, these ideas have been perfected for centuries yeah although i mean they're they're perfected but i i do kind of see the point that bruce lee was getting at whereby there's lots of maneuvers in there that aren't actually useful anymore in the same way that Mm. language needs to be able to evolve and there are words that you know i'm sorry to see them go because i like the words for their own sake but do they actually communicate anything do we use that tool or that yeah that value anymore in which case maybe that needs to go in a broom cupboard somewhere yeah and i kind of see the point i think p- my personal perspective is that if you're learning a martial art then yes a classical martial arts a good place to start it will give you an excellent grounding mm-hmm. but don't get too wedded to everything being perfect and precise unless you're competing in that specific style because if what you're looking for is something functional that you can use to you know fuck up somebody who's attacking you You've got to be willing to move outside that comfort zone a bit and try some other stuff as well. Yeah, because also the thing is technology changes, guys. Things yeah. change. <laughs> yeah, when they came up with a lot of this stuff, guns hadn't been invented yet, or at least yeah. you know, guns that would actually shoot accurately hadn't been invented. Yeah. And this is the other thing is that always gets me is, you know, a real life fight is is much scrappier than than what you end up doing whenever, you know, whenever I do a, a fight in karate or I do a match or stuff like that the person you're fighting is using the same style as you things go out of the window <laughs> if the person you're fighting isn't using the same style or isn't using any style that's it the gets great... scrappy real quick guys <laughs> that's the great irony you might be an incredible karateka or an incredible kung fu practitioner but mm. if you're put against somebody who doesn't know what you're doing, strangely enough, you become quite crap quite quickly because mm. they're not making the moves that you're expecting them to do. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing to remember is all of these things were designed for people in the know to use on people who didn't know about it. Yeah, That's why they're incredibly effective against people who don't know anything. But you find somebody who knows something else and, and actually things even up quite quickly. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to mention Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu here just because I do agree that it is one of the best styles for ground fighting. Um, I've done enough of it now that I, I, can, I genuinely can see the value. Mm-hmm. Um, it is no, by no means an undefeatable martial art. If you're doing um, MMA cage fighting, then yes, that's a really good thing to have in your bag because once you've got the opponent on the ground, that game is yours. Mm. But if, for example... As has happened to me many times, what you're actually facing is two or three or even more opponents all at once um, Mm. in a street, maybe, or in a nightclub, which again has also happened, less said, soon as mended. Um, (laughs) It's not that great, really, because you have to be very, very good at what you're... I mean, I think a BJJ black belt might actually be able to do that because what they have to go through in order to get to that level is incredible. Mm. Um, but you have to be able to take someone down, put them out of commission, then take the next one down, put them out of commission, and all, all with getting down on the floor. You, you, it just doesn't give you the time. I mean, yeah. in a in a multi-opponent fight, the best thing to do is is not get on the floor if you can possibly avoid it. Yeah, the 
that kind of tends to be end game unless 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 <laughs> you are very good at judo <laughs> in which case it's beginning of game <laughs> yeah again judo's limited use in certain situations mm. i think this is that this is what we were going to come on to a bit later but basically yeah. it's um we talked about the snobbery in martial arts and nobody is completely free from it because you have to believe that your one is the best one when you're learning it. Otherwise, yeah. you start questioning yourself. Um, but I think it, there's a lot to be said for for seeing the value in others. Like, I didn't think much of Taekwondo for a long time, partly because we don't tend to attack people on horseback anymore. Hmm. Um, we don't tend to have people with spears riding us down on horseback. So a high kick that will take someone off the back of a horse is not actually terribly useful in a street fight. That being said, you know, you can absolutely adapt anything. You could take, I don't know, you could take the black swan dance from Swan Lake and you could turn it into a series of deadly fighting manoeuvres. And Mm. what a classical martial art does is it teaches you these interpretations. So in the same way that learning a language and learning to read um, the literature of that language might not be immediately useful, giving you that grounding allows you to take what you know and repurpose it so that you can turn it into something that's useful. And I think that's something that escapes a lot of people. Which I think also ties us very neatly into the, into the idea that martial arts, you know, um, Kung Fu is very closely linked with performance as well. Yes, definitely. Theater and dance. Um, and well, you can the, understand why. <laughs> I mean, this was the other thing. There was a ban during... I can't remember which dynasty, but th- there was a ban on martial arts being practised unless you were part of the army. And the whole thing with um, Kung Fu was that, um, you know, the army was, was stationed outside the cities. It, they weren't allowed in. Very much like the Roman army wasn't allowed into Rome because, mm. you know... You have a large army with not much to do and they're all trained in fighting and what they like to do is is beat Fight. people up and kill things. You don't want to you don't want to put them in with these civilians. It's a bad yeah. idea. Um so if you you weren't really supposed to be learning it and they found the way to disguise, you know, very much like the Okinawans later did with their with their martial arts and their empty hand where you're fighting. Um, mm-hmm. they, they did it via the Chinese opera, which goes back to the Tang dynasty, so quite a long way. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's just really cool. <laughs> it is cool. So, I mean, obviously, I don't know if anyone's ever seen any Chinese opera, but I mean, if you go onto YouTube and put in Beijing opera, you'll be able to see examples of it and, you know, largely the forms and that haven't changed for about a thousand years. And it's really mm. interesting. And it's masks and, and it's colourful silks and it's dancing and singing and weirdness and it's nearly always fantasy based i find or it feels very fantasy based and usually there's martial arts in there and it's martial arts done in such a a delicate um sort of dance-like way that you you'd be forgiven for not knowing that that's what it is but it's actually kung fu (laughs) yeah absolutely and i think that this also ties in now again with why um it works so well on the screen because martial arts when when choreographed like that and even sometimes when used in real life are very precise movements um beautifully and efficiently you know um performed 
the timing is beautiful the the athleticism is beautiful the accuracy is beautiful um it's fascinating it's exciting it's shocking um of course that would translate beautifully to the screen yeah absolutely and hollywood has like pillaged with reckless abandon i think yeah um, ever since bruce lee sort of showed up in hollywood saying hey i've got this this thing i can do um that's probably not quite how that conversation went but <laughs> and by all accounts bruce lee was a bit of a dick to work with but he was a phenomenal martial artist no matter what you think of the rest of it and everyone was like we want our fight scenes to look like that we don't want this this meat and two veg punching where we're, it's quite clearly fake yeah um, we want it to look like it could be could do some serious damage and mm. the fight scenes got grittier and grittier and more precise in a lot of cases yeah it's <laughs> it's for instance i remember watching sharp right <laughs> Um, and I have a I have a background. Obviously, I've I've got a background in fencing as well. And th- this is something I noted: is that watching other people fence was never as exciting for me as watching other people fight using martial arts. For the most part, it depended on the on the level, to be honest. Um, but certainly, like high level, and, and don't get me wrong, I think high level fencing is incredibly exciting. Um, but I would, it, for me, it was even more exciting when I got to see two people actually fighting hand to hand. So, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I think it depends. I, I, I generally agree with you. Um, and I have to say, having gone back and watched a few of the Errol Flynn films I used to like to watch with my dad as a child, I'm now looking yeah. at the sword play and going, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're was... deliberately trying to hit each other's swords rather than the opponent. Yeah, isn't what, what's going on here? Yeah, because I watched the sharp episode and I was like, oh, there's a they're, they're going to fence. How there's going to be all this tension and stuff like that, and there wasn't. I was like, ah. <laughs> and to be fair, most things. I mean, every you know things like Rob Roy, for example, which again is at least twenty years ago, um, but they now spend more time with the actors actually learning to use the weapons or the stunt guys coming in. I mean, think of the Lord of the Rings, the sword fighting, mm. that was, was real and they spent months on it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's definitely changed, but defi- but certainly back um, sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, it was kind of like, here's a sword, just make it look realistic. Nobody really put any effort into it. And then obviously Bruce Lee turned up and everyone started re-questioning fight scenes and things. Yeah. Um, which, little aside, Bruce Lee turning up in Hollywood um, and suddenly kung fu films coming to the fore, all this stuff that, you know, the US wouldn't necessarily have seen because of the Chinese opera being, you know, they had it in America and New York and places, but it was quite a niche thing. Yeah. And him making the big screen the way he did kind of brought all of that skill and athleticism into the public eye. People mm. wanted better fight scenes and things. Um, quite understandably and the hip-hop movement which was in its infancy at the time went we need to be able to do that and you know Mm. a a whole bunch of uh, guys um, from that sort of background started learning kung fu I mean we know a few of them went on to become quite famous kung fu masters in their own right Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. and 
it bled into the hip hop movement. So you see some of the, the, the typical moves and things for hip hop. And I'm like, I was okay, this is embarrassing. I'm going to out myself. And I'd like to say that this has been a fitness thing for me. And I'm not a dancer. I'm definitely a fighter. <laughs> I said this to my capoeira instructor once when he was trying to get me to do the traditional dance. And I'm like, no, no, I'm here for the fighting. I'm not here for dancing. <laughs> fighter, not dancer. Um, bad things happen when I dance. Um, mm. But <laughs> I was learning some of the hip hop stuff. And, you know, basically I look, I look like a white girl doing hip hop because strangely enough, I'm a white girl doing hip hop. Mm. But it's, it's good fitness. <laughs> And I was doing some of the moves and I'm like, this is basically martial arts. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it wasn't me putting an interpretation on it. It's like, no, this is literally from Kung Fu. <laughs> I can see that. And it's just been changed very slightly in terms of rhythm. It's really interesting. That's really, really cool. And yeah, I can totally see that happening. I've got a fun story for you that you might enjoy. In fact, you might already know this. But um, George Takai. Yeah guy who plays Sulu um, in original Star Trek. Um, now, Sulu ha- is is meant to be a master of the sword on yes. Star Trek. There's a whole scene with him running around with a sword. Um, and originally, the creators wanted to give him a katana. And George Takai didn't want this. So he told them... He said, oh no, but um, like, I, I'm already trained to use... I think it was a saber... Yes. And they were like, oh, well, since you're trained to do that, I guess we'll give you a saber. And he was like, excellent. And then he went off to go get some lessons to learn to use the saber. Because <laughs> he, he really didn't want to have it to be a katana. Um, and he, when he went to do it, he discovered he was actually really, he was a natural. Yeah. And he picked it up really, really fast. But yeah, when you were talking about the fact that they train people to do it better now, I just love that. That he was like, no, no, I can do it. And they didn't check. They nobody, didn't check to see nobody, if they... If they... No, nobody did. Nobody did. Nobody did. Like, they were like, okay. You say you can do it, fine. <laughs> but he really could. But not because of, it was he did it the other way around. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. Okay, let's look at what makes martial arts choreographed scenes so engaging in films. Yeah. So, I so mean, we've obviously talked about the athleticism and the skill, and yeah. it's no small thing. When you see somebody, I guess when I see a a fight scene um, that's clearly kung fu oriented or martial arts oriented, what I see is hours and hours of practice and people getting it wrong and getting yeah. up and trying again. Because I know I've been there, and just nobody filmed me doing it. Well, nobody really filmed anything for a film, put it that way. Yeah. And this is the other thing is people say, oh, but, you know, it's it's all, you know, it's all choreographed, it's faked and stuff like that. That doesn't change the amount of practice it takes. I mean, uh, in karate, when you do a kata, depending what level you're at, you, you might do something called a bunkai at the end, where particularly for group kata. So you'll have three people, they'll perform the kata together and then they'll do a bunkai, which basically breaks down the kata and shows you what the moves actually are. Um, and it's this amazing, I really recommend people go and check it out. Just go and go and YouTube it because there are some fantastic bunkai out there, which is these three people who've been doing this kata together are now just attacking each other and showing all of the moves. And it's incredible. And back when I was doing a, we, I was part of a team, we were preparing for the nationals. We were doing a kata for the nationals and we had to prepare a bunkai to go with it. 
and hours. It took hours and hours of practice because it wasn't just about sort of getting the moves. You know, you had to perform these moves with power but complete control so that you weren't actually hurting the person but you were demonstrating them. The timings had to be right. You know, there was still a lot of skill level attached to it. It was incredibly difficult and it took a lot of, you know, we were doing this for weeks and weeks and weeks, three, four times a week we were doing this, practicing for hours and hours and hours just to do this one uh, bunkai for a competition. So it just because when you when I see them in films, like I have a lot of appreciation for it, particularly if it's done right. Yeah, um, and this is you know I keep linking martial arts and and language and the fact that mm. if you know the basics, you can build it up. And essentially, bunkai or application is is what what it is. Mm. And um, Gojiru does it slightly differently. And in my opinion, I think it does it slightly better because you do your you learn fewer katas on the way mm. up through. Um, so you might learn a kata for every two belts, but each belt, for each second belt, you need to be able to pull out three applications for each move. So three different bunkai for each move. Mm. So by the time someone gets to black belt and go to it really um, is quite, you tend, you know, theoretically, your the your theoretical knowledge, your, your grasp of the vocabulary of the martial art is probably greater than it is for say Shotokan for example. Shotokan they don't actually ask you to learn Bunkai until you're about third dan. Wow really? You might practice it at your instructor's discretion but you won't be graded on it. You don't get graded on Bunkai and I've always felt that was a mistake. It was very noticeable at the club that I trained at that because I kept nagging the instructor about it suddenly he started looking into Bunkai more. And then suddenly we started doing it more in lessons because I think he thought I had a point. Hmm. So, I mean, that, that's the other thing is different martial arts have different grading systems. Um, you can get a bit too wedded to a grading system and not look outside it for, for other stuff. Um, yeah. Gojiru held it that there was a, a basically a Q-grade bunkai. There was a, you know, a more complex bunkai for each mm. move. And then there was a hidden and the hidden was your personal interpretation of the move. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And the, the people who genuinely became really, really good were the people who, who could see that and stopped seeing, well, now I do this move, now I do that move. But suddenly they were doing what they were actually doing when they were doing the kata, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I guess the thing to remember is kata is a mnemonic device for linking moves together when you can't practice them against somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, a little aside there. I, I was always, I have competed um, doing team kata, but I was always a much more enthusiastic fighter, both mm. with weapons and with empty hands. Um, but I have done team kata and we've scored really high with it, but always at the back of my mind was the team kata is basically a choreographed dance and that wasn't what I was there for, I guess. I know some people really loved it, but... I kind of felt like it was an add-on thing and didn't really add an awful lot to the martial art done in, 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 in a team like that because kata on your own when you're graded or judged in a competition individually on kata, they're grading you on your interpretation and your understanding of the manoeuvres, or they should be. Mm. 
Yeah, I because I'm the same as you. I was very much a fighter. Um, I wasn't ever really very good at cutter. As in, I could do cutter. Don't get me wrong. I could get through my grades, and I did. We did cutter sometimes, several cutters per per belt, um, and bunkai and stuff like that as well for for washinko. So I could do a lot of kata. Um, and the the team cutter was very much an exercise in... Because we did... Um, uh, well, <laughs> as I said, it took a long time for us to do it. And uh, for me, it was an exercise actually in slowing down. Um, but I really... The re- I did the cutter so we could do the bunkai because I loved the bunkai <laughs> so much. It was so much fun, Jules. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was amazing as well, I think. And the uniformity as well, I think, was a really interesting thing for me of three people doing something perfectly timed. It was a very different experience. Um, but yeah, I, I do recommend people go and watch. Watch Team Cutters and watch Team Bunkai's because when they're done properly... It, they do look amazing and you can see that that dancing style and then the the reality of of the movements and i think that that's incredibly um exciting um anyway uh... anyway so um <laughs> basically going back to fight scenes in in terms of choreographed fight scenes in films each fight is a dialogue mm. um so generally you know, in fact, all fight scenes should be a kind of dialogue, um, certainly yeah. in films and often in books. Otherwise, what you've got is a scene of violence. And, mm. you know, that does have its place. But you're trying to communicate story and character. Um, a fight scene needs to be about speaking without words, um, mm. in, in my opinion, anyway. And I certainly the more I think about it, when I see choreographed fight scenes, the more I think, no, a lot is being said here. This isn't mm. just about a vi- visual spect- spectacular this is mm. this is also about this character is saying this, this character is saying that without actually saying anything at all. So forget the snappy repartee. Yeah, that's that's additional. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that the the snappy kind of rapport that's a very Western thing. Yes, um, a very very Western thing of the witty dialogue as you exchange. You see it all the time in the fencing. You know, tink tink tink. I'll have you, tink tink tink. Um, like this will be my revenge, etc. And then you know, th- there's the back and forth there. Whereas in a particularly a lot of sort of Asian movies, you don't get that. They'll draw apart, look at one another, talk for a little bit, and then they'll go in for one big move. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. It so, always, but... <laughs> I, I think, it always bugs me in books and films. Although I've, you know, I've seen this in real life where you've got two mm. people fighting and one of them says something really insulting about someone else's mother or girlfriend or what have you, and I'm just like, that would not work on me. In fact, people have tried it; it doesn't work on me. If you get me in proper fight mode, you've just basically got stormtrooper face from me, as in there's no expression. <laughs> you won't get any you won't get anything you won't get anger because i'm i'm zanshin i'm there i'm I'm in continuing mind um mm. and insulting anybody at that point it doesn't matter it doesn't doesn't matter what you say you're not going to distract me from my end goal <laughs> it's like it doesn't matter what you say i'm already going to kill you says jules 
well yeah or you know <laughs> throw you over a table or whatever um true story uh, but <laughs> the thing is it's but having said that i've seen it i've seen blokes have, getting into it in the street and someone says something insulting and the other one's kind of like oh my honor has been offended i must go in and it's like He's clearly trying to draw you out. You must know that. You can't possibly be that stupid. <laughs> Why are you reacting emotionally? And I guess this is the thing. I've spent 27 years doing martial arts. Mm. So most of my life. And, you know, even before that, I had some basic fighting skills, thanks to my dad. Mm. Um, and the fact that I, <laughs> I was a girl who played with boys. Um, so I just wasn't going to get... I've never been emotional in a fight. Even when someone's hurt me, I've not been emotional about it. It's just kind of like, well, you go in, you're going to get hit. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem, that I see too many people doing things, stuff like this, and you punch me in the face. Oh, my God. And it's like, well, yeah, you got in the ring. That's what happens. You get in the ring, you get punched. <laughs> it's like a knife fight, okay? One of the... When I was in South Africa and learning to knife fight from one of the guys out there, and the South Africans are incredibly good at knife fighting. There's there's lots of gun control, but the knife fighting is a real problem. And mm. a real expert would literally just carve you up where you stand. So I was learning from some really good guys out there. And the first thing he said was, there's going to be blood, you're going to get cut. Make your peace with that now. And it's true. If you're ever in a knife fight, that's, that's what's going to happen. But you can choose where it happens kind of thing. Yeah. So it just throws me. It's like, if, if you if you don't want to get hit, don't get in the ring. And I, I find, I think I carry that attitude over into a lot of things, like people complaining on Twitter about someone else saying something back to them after they've been really snarky. And it's like, if you don't want to get hit, don't get in the ring and start swinging your fist around. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a difficult <laughs> equation. <laughs> anyway, sorry about that rant. Um, yeah, so the whole sort of speaking without words in a fight scene, it it's... It, you know you get loads of them that say say a lot really so how many fight scenes have you seen where two characters are clearly they're on opposite sides but there's clearly some mutual attraction going on there even if it's mutual attraction in terms of friendship or in terms of respect for the other's fighting ability there's there's chemistry there mm, and yeah. you know it doesn't have to be sexual chemistry it just has to be kind of like damn i wish we weren't fighting against each other well yeah that's the thing is that you says <laughs> people are like oh there's so much chemistry and i, I kind of get a bit fed up with the whole says like ah oh, sexual chemistry um because i'm like i don't know something else can happen something quite profound can happen when you're fighting someone who's really good and you're both sort of really getting into it um and it, it's not inherently sexual but there can be this sort of weird sense of camaraderie this weird sense of um, respect and you know yeah it, it sort of reminds me of something that you know whatever you think of Orson Scott Card um, something he said in Ender's Game really resonated with me mm. and Ender's talking about the fact that the way he looks at the world the way he looks at an opponent um, he'll see quite quickly how to destroy the, the opponent the, the his antagonist the one who's against him Mm -hmm. But he's talking to his sister at the time and he says, and in that moment where I understand how to destroy them, I also love them because I can see everything they are. And if mm -hmm. you get a true moment of, of Zanshin in a fight like that, mm -hmm. then yes, you do get that connection. You do get that chemistry and it's not necessarily sexual. No. Or even friendly, but it is there. It's a, that perfect moment of understanding. 
Yeah. It's... It's also, like, one thing that can be done quite well... Alright, so there is a... I've mentioned it before. There's a series called The Untamed, which is based on a novel by a Chinese author called Mo Dao Zushi. Um, And there are these two characters who ultimately, you know, um, in the book do get together called Lan Jian and Wei Wuxian. And one of their first fight sequences, they're really on opposite ends. Lan Jian is the strict upholder of the sect rules and laws, which is, you know, it's a very... It's it's the sect built from a Buddhist monk. There's no drinking. There's no, you know, you go to bed at eight o'clock and you go straight to sleep kind of thing. Yeah. And Wei Wuxian is a bit of a, you know, he's a bit of a playboy. He's a little bit, um, you know, a, a bit of a maverick. And he sneaks out to get alcohol and tries to bring it back into the sect. And Lan Zhen catches him and they start to fight. And it's this, obviously they do it all with wires because it's, you know, it, it's it's Taoist um, fantasy. So, you know, they can fly around and stuff like that. Uh, but there are these great fight sequences and Lan Zhan doesn't really talk. Wei Wuxian talks a lot, but Lan Zhan doesn't really talk that much. And there's this great sense of dialogue which they build up, which is Lan Zhan, first of all, getting increasing... First of all, he's insulted by this guy who's loud. And then he gets increasingly frustrated because he expects this uh, this maverick character to be bad. He doesn't expect him to be a good fighter because he looks at him and, and has immediately made the assumption, this is a lazy person who has not refined their skills yeah. and is clearly just trying to have fun. And then is sort of surprised when actually this is, Wei Wuxian is not lazy. He's incredibly talented and he's very hardworking. And, you know, he has the skills to demonstrate that. And you have this entire narrative where he goes from being very dismissive to very frustrated because this guy is... Um, is actually able to kind of meet him head on and is able to evade him. And the way that the sort of the rest of the series sort of progresses this kind of meeting, they draw back on it. It's the beginning of their romance. Yeah. Because it's the beginning of I feel challenged and I'm not really, he's not happy about it, but he's been forced to reassess his initial um, understanding of this other person and he suddenly found himself in a position where he goes, I don't, I, everything I thought I knew, everything I thought I understood has been challenged. Yeah. Um, and so there's a great sense of dialogue which is used in that. And it, and that, I can, that's what we're talking about. There's a lot of depth to it. Um, and again, it doesn't always have to be sexual tension. It can be, I don't understand what's happening or we could be brothers in arms. You know, there's, there's all sorts of ways that it can be interpreted. Yeah. Um, you can also have things like playfulness or mm. determination, especially when you've got both, both fighters, say it's just a two person fight yeah. um, against each other. Neither of them's a villain, but they're both in each other's way. Mm. They're yeah. both doing what they think's right. Um, or, you know, how many have you had one where it's mostly focused on one main character, but it tells you a lot about that character. Um, mm. The great example there is probably the most recent Daredevil series from Netflix. Yeah. 
um, where it tells you where every fight scene, the corridor fight scenes, tell you a lot about Matt Murdock, and he absolutely gets battered. He really does. <laughs> I do love, I love the, those fight scenes because they seem so realistic to me. Because it's just like it's one guy, he fights amazingly, and he just sort of he's like crawling out of the other end, like. Ugh. <laughs> blood everywhere yeah it's kind of like if you've ever done 100 man kumite where you just fight one person after another after another after another and you just have to keep going or collapse it's kind of like yeah it's like that yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the good old days Uh. (laughs) Uh, let's check out some examples so my one of my go-tos just because i think it's such an interesting juxtaposition is crouching tiger hidden dragon which is a Mm. 90s film starring michelle yao and um uh, Chao, I want to say Chao Young Fat. I think he's in it too. It's been a while. Mm. Um, but anyway, Michelle Yao's been in many, many things since then, and she is a good martial artist. Uh, but this is basically martial arts telling fairy tale, and it very mm. much is a fairy tale. Um, and considering what it was at the time, to have the two main characters just largely be female, and this is a case of you know, seizing your own destiny, seizing your own talent and what you want out of life or not being able to seize it. Mm. That was the interesting thing for me. It doesn't have a happy ending. No. Um, it's very bittersweet and it, it, it's quite typical of a Chinese fairy tale if you've ever read any of those. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that some... Okay, I... <laughs> my, my then boyfriend was kind of like, oh, it's not very realistic, they're flying. And I'm like... Yeah, I know, but they're not doing Goju Karate. They're doing fantasy kung fu. <laughs> yeah, it's the, okay. <laughs> I think the thing with the with the flying and stuff like that, which you see it particularly in sort of, you see it a lot in Asian uh, dramas, particularly in in Japanese, uh, not sorry, Chinese dramas. They're flying around all over the place. It's you know, and the way that they fight. This is not a way that obviously people, real people fight. But then you know, you look at Marvel, and that's not a way that real people fight either. Um, but for me, it captures. It's capturing the essence of the fight. So it's like the spirit of the style, the spirit of kung fu is there, even if it's not physically there. Does that make yeah. any sense at all? Yeah. Although. It definitely um so it has some fancy elements but how they were using the weapons like there's a najinata fight and based on what i know of najinata that was actually i mean i think they call it something different in chinese um but mm. it's escaping me at the moment but basically it's najinata and yeah what i know of of najinata a pole arm with a basically a 16 inch blade on the end mm. love them so much that's accurate <laughs> that, that how they were using it was right um, I have to say that Chinese martial arts using pole arms, they, they tend to have their weight back further and they use, the, you know, they don't start two thirds of the way down the pole like you would in, in Japanese martial arts. Mm. And the poles tend to be whippier. But a lot of, a lot of, there is still a lot of crossover. It's not that I've studied weapons or anything. I don't know. How, <laughs> much, how, how incriminating is this? How, am I, how much am I outing myself to everyone? You're such a liar. It's not that I've studied weapons or anything. Liar. <laughs> You're studying them right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the actual... I mean, I, I've got a soft spot for the Chinese bladed weapons and their maces and things, and they're all really fancy, and they all largely do the same things. They're not really that different to any of the Western weapons. It's just, I think they look prettier. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but but yeah, most of that is all fairly accurate, even if it's choreographed. And I'm kind of mm. glad it's choreographed because to get to a level where you could have a Najinata fight with somebody and not one of you like decapitate the other by accident or lock someone's foot off, yeah. particularly with live blades. Um, same with swords as well, actually. Mm. Okay, um, House of Flying Daggers, which... You know, the main character is, is blind, allegedly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just such an arty film. I'm not sure how much I even like it in some ways because the whole point of the fight scenes is that they're all building to this thwarted love story. Mm. But it's amazing to watch, amazingly visual, and I think it's one of the, the kung fu films that actually really shows the crossover between dance and martial arts. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly visual film, um, and I think they've they've actually really captured that an element of of the Chinese opera as well yeah. in it. Um, yeah, don't don't watch it if you're looking for a happy ending, guys. Yeah, well, once again, it is it, it's not got the happiest event. Most of these films no. haven't. No, no, they don't. Um, but it's it is it's a it's a really beautiful film to watch. Uh, we've obviously mentioned Daredevil. Um, oh God, I love those fight scenes in Daredevil. They did a great job with that. Yeah, they definitely did. Um, the only thing I would object to is like the accumulative damage. I mean, they do show it accumulates, but he's still moving. He's not spending three weeks in bed. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's because it, obviously the whole thing is that he can he can meditate to heal up quicker, and and you do see sometimes you know him. Uh, you know, um, improving, uh, sort of having to to sort of recover and stuff like that. But yeah, I do agree that there is a an element of the. Uh... <laughs> I do want to mention the um, movie Daredevil, which had Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner in. Um, mm-hmm. Ben Affleck is not the most amazing martial artist, but Jennifer Garner is very good. And there's one scene in there that I really like, and it's where they've just kind of met in the restaurant. And there's a little mm-hmm. bit of banter or what have you. And then they're out in the playground afterwards. And he's kind of rumbled the fact that she knows martial arts. And she, and so he does something to tip her off that he does too. And they have this really interesting playground fight where they're leaping back and forth on seesaws and stuff. And it's just really <laughs> cool. And it, it very much is the essence of this fight as a dialogue kind of thing. They're mm-hmm. not saying, I'm attracted to you. Would you like to go out? They're having a okay well let's see if you see this coming okay that that was quite a nice elbow strike there all right you've got my attention <laughs> and okay that personally resonates really well for me okay <laughs> it's this is the thing that always makes me laugh though is this has been used so often in in western movies now um you know where two people fight um and there's a okay they're they're thwarting one another oh there's a little bit of chemistry here right yeah and and you know that perhaps they have to they're on the same side ultimately and stuff like that and it's been used so often as a cue to say right so this is romantic that you then get movies where it's between two guys um uh, let's say captain america and uh bucky barnes 
Oh hell, you let's know, say Superman versus Batman. Superman versus Batman, and people, and and then and then and then people watch it and go, oh hell, this is romantic, and everyone goes, how can you say that? How can you have the audacity? Because you've been using the same format as a as a trick to say, oh, isn't this romantic? Um, you know, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, going back to ye oldie, I say ye oldie, but 60s, 70s style kung fu films, Enter the Dragon is obviously the classic. Um, I would yes. also mention The Way of the Dragon. Most of those films are set up to be a showcase for Bruce Lee's talents. There's no two yeah. ways about it. But Bruce Lee's actually a quite a good comic actor, particularly in things like The Way of the Dragon. There's some genuinely funny stuff in there. And I would say mm. The Way of the Dragon in some ways is a better film than Enter the Dragon. Um, okay. But um, Enter the Dragon and even Game of Death. Game of Death is, is literally just kind of like, ha, ah, it's Fight Island, one after the other. You <laughs> fight your way through the series of opponents. It, it's not high concept, mm. but every single character is kind of like, you, you learn who they are as characters through the way they fight. And for a martial arts nerd, that, that was really, really fun. That's cool. I've never seen it. Well, I, like I've seen clips of it because you know it's yeah the it's... yellow tracksuit for example <laughs> yeah, like Kill uh, Bill the yellow tracksuit yeah and you know um... Kill Bill's another one that sort of yeah. it's it's literally just riffing off that yeah absolutely um so I, I kind of do want to talk a little bit about Shang Chi um and the Ten Rings um Jules you haven't seen it have you I have not no no. Um, one thing I actually really liked about Shang-Chi was that they brought the comedy back into it. So that comedy we were talking about with Bruce Lee, but also with Jackie Chan, who, who there's a great sense of comedy in the way that Jackie Chan does his fights, which you actually get again in this, um, in Shang-Chi, which is, I think, uh, you know, my, my partner and I went to see it and, uh, we were saying, yeah, it, it felt very much like an 80s Kung Fu movie in, in, in the fights. There's in particular, there's one scene I want to talk about where uh, a, a fight breaks out on a bus. It's a really epic fight. <laughs> it feels very 80s. And there's just this one bit where Shang-Chi is clearly looking for something to grab hold of, which he can use to, you know, as a defense or to hit someone. And earlier on, there was this woman who was set on the bus who was writing her dissertation on her laptop. <laughs> And he grabs the laptop and she's like, no, no, no. <laughs> and he uses it as a shield and gets cut in half. And then he returns it to her like, sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh. So let me save my work first. Let me save it to the cloud. <laughs> But that was that was a total Jackie Chan moment. The sorry about that <laughs> kind of thing. The the grab something nearby and then return it to its place afterwards. You know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they they did fantastic job with the with the martial arts. You could tell that they really paid a lot of attention to it. Um, and the way that they filmed the fight sequence, it was very small differences, but. Um, one thing you get in particular in a lot of Western um, sort of stuff is that you just, it'll just be punch after punch after punch after punch after punch. And one thing you get in a lot of 
Asian stuff is that it'll be a build-up to one particular punch or one particular move, and then you will really you'll see it go the whole way through, as it were. Yeah. It doesn't just cut to the next, you know, cut to the next scene or anything like that. It doesn't just cut to the next camera. You see the punch coming in. You see it landing. You see the after effects. Um, and I think the reason that you don't do a lot of that is that um, unless you are doing the move properly, unless you have actually choreographed it really, really well, it won't look good. So they camera angles, they might just change things so that you don't see it. Whereas, of course, um, it was a it was a staple in terms of martial arts movies where you had these real martial artists performing real moves. And that's something they did in Shang-Chi. Um, so you got to see this amazing fight, um, these amazing movements, beautifully choreographed. And through them, so much of the character who is going through this kind of, this really difficult moment where his fight style, you know, he has been trained meticulously to be an assassin. As a child, he was trained to be an assassin. Um, but that's not who he is as a person, really. It's not who he is anymore, and it's not who he was originally. Um, and so they they play on this idea of the, the yin and yang, the darkness and the light, um, and how he's almost fighting himself as he is fighting, because the fighting is representative of something that he doesn't particularly like about himself. Yeah. Um and I think it's it's done really, really well. So you get so much of that dialogue through the fight scenes. Um, it's, I do recommend it for anyone who does love a good good kung fu movie. Um, uh, but wants that lightness, um, not of not of the Chinese opera, but of the of the Western kung fu movie with people like Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan. I think people they'll enjoy it. Yeah. Okay. Um, the Matrix. Matrix, <laughs> which which. Um you know, has has many things going on in it, but The Matrix specifically in terms of Kung Fu and Kung Fu kind of being used as a mystical art of the mind um, in order to attain self-mastery. Mm. I mean, Neo's... Uh, I don't... I think everyone who ever saw that has to, has to admit that that moment where Neo gets full self-mastery... Yeah, is just jaw-droppingly awesome. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're talking about the stopping the bullets in the air, and... yeah. But I mean, like, obviously, you see his growth. You see him learning kung fu and stuff like that. Um, you know, um, but when he's actually sort of, it all comes together at the end, where it's you know you can see all the steps he's taken in order to get to that level. Um, all coming together with this sense of self-mastery. I just think it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it is a, it's a really interesting concept, the way they've used that. Um, fun fact, they were supposed to get three weeks kung fu martial arts type training mm. and they needed three months. And three months as in nine hours a day, every day. Yeah. I mean, so they, it, it they held off. up production of the <laughs> yeah they held up production of the film going sort of like we don't look convincing yet it's like well of course you don't it's only been three weeks yeah <laughs> so 
so um that was slightly underestimated but you're right it absolutely pays off um the final one that i'll i'll mention is romeo must die which has another great comedic kung fu actor in it and that's jet lee mm. jet lee might actually be better than bruce lee in terms Ooh, you, of you're gonna get some people who are gonna get mad by that comment well maybe in terms of if you want just a sheer classical martial artist who was clearly a martial arts genius yeah bruce lee but mm. jet lee's kind of taken it and made it more flexible again mm. um and i think what you have to remember with bruce lee is he went off and trained under many many other different disciplines when he found there were gaps in kung fu yeah um as well and jet lee's sort of taken that and, and gone with it um i think in some ways jet lee might He's he's building on what Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan and various other martial artists did. Mm. Uh, Sammo Hung. Sammo Hung went to the same school of Kung Fu as, as um, Jackie Chan. But he looks less plausible because he's a big guy. And yet Sammo Hung is a seriously good martial artist. He's really <laughs> fucking good. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, Romeo Must Die. Basically, you have got a Chinese um, assassin type character which is who Jet Li plays and mm -hmm. he ends up um, falling foul of a, of, of a mob in America and also falling in love with um, sort of a local girl whose brother was involved in that mob and helping her find out who killed her brother. Mm. It's played by Aaliyah and it was one of the last things she was in before she tragically died um, and their, their, their on-screen chemistry together is amazing. They're so good. Mm. Um, it's just a really, really good martial arts film, and it does not any. Even though there's there's humour and you know there's some excellent fight scenes and things in it, there's a cost. You can see the cost every time uh, Jet Li's character is actually fighting, as mm. in you can quite literally see it. So it, it's a, just a great martial arts film. Hmm. Okay, I'm gonna have to check that out. Um. So. We're sort of drawing to the end now, but I, I think we should probably talk about in real life. Kung yeah. Fu in real life. <laughs> um, so, you know, having talked about how all amazing this is, uh, very few of the moves used in Kung Fu films will actually work on people or work for people in real life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's the thing. In terms of martial arts vocabulary, Kung Fu has a huge vocabulary, very much like, you know, Chinese yeah um mandarin but not everybody can access the full vocabulary so and it's the same with any martial art you need to be able to use oh, obviously don't learn martial arts from a kung fu film go and find an instructor to do it properly yeah <laughs> that should go without saying but i'm gonna say it um but yeah that there is we, we always used to say with karate not every single move will work for everyone you've got your basic moves which should work for everyone mm. but there are some things where Put it this way, I, as a, uh, certainly at the time, as a five foot five woman who weighed just slightly north of eight and a half stone at that time, um, fighting a 21 stone man who was six foot two, and this literally happened, and being told I needed to sweep his leg. Well, he had legs like tree trunks, and I've got feet like, I don't know, they're teeny. Tiny. They're so teeny, small. teeny. It was like being given a little butter knife to chop down a tree. It wasn't happening. <laughs> And I was getting him down on the floor and stamping on him and what have you. And finally the instructor went, you're cheating. And I was like, oh shit, he's noticed. 
And what? Well, yeah, of course I was cheating. I was pulling the guy out of his stance because I noticed a weak spot. So I was grabbing him, pulling him off balance and then sweeping the leg because guess what? My little foot is not going to go through that massive leg. <laughs> yeah. Not not the way you want it to. I can take his knee, but I can't take him his ankle because there's, there's too much weight on it. So, yeah, a lot of it is adapting stuff to suit you after you've been mm. taught by an instructor. Um, this is where we're getting at with the Kung Fu films. It, they're not supposed to work. It's fantasy. Um, mm. If you factor in the wires and everything else, the, the stunt guys and the fact they've spent a long time working out what it's going to look like, it, it would be very unusual for something that awesome to work in real life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there are a lot, you know, there are different styles and different things which are going to work for people of different sizes, capability, flexibility, things like that. Um, you know, people can say, oh, if you're small, then you've got to be agile and quick. It, it It's not as simple as that. You know, um, it really will come down to the person. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, you know, that being said, like most fantasy, uh, you know, it does have its basis in fact. Um, but the really important thing to remember is that no martial art is indefensible or unbeatable, no matter what certain people will say. <laughs> yes, not even Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. Um, although I, I strongly recommend that if you don't know BJJ, that you don't get into a wrestling match with a BJJ guy because <laughs> they will mess you up. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, but and no, it, it's it's not a complete martial art in and of itself. In fact, no, no martial art is really. You need to learn lots of different things. Yeah, and you know, different martial arts will work better for different people. Um. So <laughs> I mean, yeah, like Jules, Jules. <laughs> Is not going to start classic wrestling. She's too small. <laughs> well, I mean, I could do it if I really hated myself, but I've got to say, I've done BJJ and I always felt like I'd been stampeded by a herd of wildebeest afterwards because those guys are big. And even yeah. the little guys are big. <laughs> I was covered. I was I was literally black and blue. And it, it's fun, but you get you do get seriously beaten up. So imagine going from that to something like WWF wrestling which you know yeah. is as fake as kung fu films it would you know i'd get messed up um, yeah but i am pretty handy with some other stuff yeah don't give knives to jewels no give knives to jewels definitely give <laughs> knives to jewels we like knives we like the pointy things <laughs> i remember when i was when i was training for the nationals um in kumite um, my sensei was like, I've got a surprise for you. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and he's like, this is Jason. We call him the bear. <laughs> now, that was your I surprise. Was, that was my surprise. I was, uh, I must have been 17, 18. Jason was in his 20s, I think. Well, the bear. We call him the bear. He was over, well over six foot big muscular strong guy i mean perhaps i'm remembering this in a very certain like perhaps he's not over six foot but that, that, certainly there's a reason he was called the bear he was huge um and he was very strong and usually in a committee match um you know it's you do the punch stop you draw back you reset you start again you know whenever points and stuff like that that's for you know that's for competition committee 
Um, and sensei, and sen- and then usually also if you then just do non-competition committee and that you're just fighting and punching and stuff like that, it's usually timed. You know, you usually go for about sort of a minute, two minutes, maybe three minutes. And Sensei said, you're just going to fight him. And I was like, okay, for how long? Just fight him. Half an hour, Jules. I fought him for half an hour. He beat the living daylights out of me. <laughs> Yeah. He was so much stronger than me. He was bigger than me. Um and oh, the other thing is after half an hour, you well, I mean after a few minutes, you get exhausted. And I I, I will say it wasn't a straight half an hour. We did stop and then restart. Um but you know, we would be going for long stints of time. Um to the point that we're both gasping for air, you know. Um it was really really tough. But it meant when I got got into the ring with people my own age and size, I was like, this is better than the bear. I I fought the bear, I can deal with this. Yeah, I mean, I found something similar, but largely because I was, uh, for a long, certainly when I started as a teenager, I was the only girl and it was Mm. a room full of grown men and I was too old to go in the kids' class where there were a few girls. Um, Yeah. But I was a puny, puny, skinny little fifteen-year-old yeah. <laughs> in with the blokes, and I just kept coming week after week and coming back bruised week after week. <laughs> and eventually, I did did start to get somewhere. And obviously, when I went off to university, there were more girls doing it, although still proportionally far lower than the blokes. Mm. And then years later, um, I I found that the the um, the the ippon the kumite the ippon kumite where you, you're basically scoring to a point or nihon mm-hmm. kumite where you're scoring to two points um, yeah. we won't go into the scoring system right now but and they they stop and reset you as Madeline said um, then I got um, entered in the world championships I went out with the the UK team and they didn't tell me I was actually entered in the kumite until after they'd shut the doors on the plane and the plane was in the air because I'd been a bit sort of like <laughs> do I want to do it I'm like okay well I guess I have to now. Um, <laughs> And they entered me for Irakumi. Irakumi does not reset. Irakumi is four minutes of hell and it doesn't stop until someone hits the mat. Yeah, wow, okay. So I did that and I fought my way all the way up and I was in the finals for that and it was me and this other girl and um, I was 27, I think. Yeah, Mm. 27. And we went through it all and once you're black belt, I mean, there are moves you're not supposed to do if you're sort of a Q grade, as in they don't let you do elbows and knees, they don't let you do open hand strikes and things because the, the potential for damage is too great. Yeah. That all goes out the window. If you can prove you can do a move after you've got your black belt, and I was second down by then. Mm. I was nearly third down, in fact, because I took my third down a month afterwards. If you can prove you can do a move safely, they're kind of like, yeah, that's fine. That looked plausible. We'll score it. And at the end of the match, they'll tell you who scored the most points. Well, okay, a minute and a half in, I'm like, I'm not having this. <laughs> so I um, I got her with a leg lock and took her down. And they stopped us and reset us at that point, And then we had to carry on. Because there was no way you were not going to be fighting for the full, full four and a half minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and we went through and I was like, okay, I'm going to get some, get some kicks and things in. And we, we absolutely battered each other. Although in fairness, I think I battered her slightly more because my blood was up and I was just like, okay, I'm willing to go to all lengths now. And I think she was a bit taken aback by this because girls don't usually fight like that. (laughs) And I won. And okay, here's the weird story. You know, we're talking about chemistry and stuff. Mm -hmm. We were later on 
we were standing on the podium and you have your you know the the top podium is with your your, per, your gold medalist and then the slightly mm. lower one is this silver medalist so she was on that one and i was on the gold one and the senior eighth dan or whatever was coming around giving medals etc and we just had our medals and someone was taking pictures and she leans over to me and, and she asked me out. She asked me for my number. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's so sweet. But also I'm only in South Africa for another week and, and I'm seeing somebody at the moment. But thank Aww. you. <laughs> so there you go. Nice. I, and that it sort of um, changed things a little bit for me in the sense of I'd always had the the blokes going oh wow you do karate oh you do karate and you're quite good at fighting okay and they had this sort of urge to to go out with you because they kind of wanted to conquer you Mm. and didn't really twig until she did that that actually having that dialogue via fighting in real life and sort of just appreciating someone else's skill might mean that it wasn't always sinister so there you go weird personal story You know, it's occurred to me, Jules, that you and I have never, we've never done a match. We haven't. Do you want to? Maybe. Yes. I mean, a little bit afraid, not going to (laughs) lie. Like, very afraid. But, like, I'm I'm kind of curious. Kind of want to. Well, you know, I'm quite a bit older than you. Yeah. uh... (laughs) So I'm either a veteran or I'm at a disadvantage. This feels, this feels really weird. It's like, listen, Jules, I want you to beat me. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd I'd love to because I just think it would be it would be brilliant. It would be fantastic. I do remember when um we had Japanese exchange students um and some you know several of the exchange students who came to stay with us um did karate and one of the girls she came and did karate and I was so excited and we did a match and at the time I was the captain of the club um I was in this was at school um I was a first dan black belt um and the girl the Japanese girl who came to fight she was also a first dan and we fought um and we we fought committee rules committee match she won and the other guys in the club, uh, they started, uh, up until this point, th- none of them had ever really beat me in a fight because they were much lower grades than me. Um, and they, they laughed at me, said, ha ha, you got beaten. And I was like, I don't understand why you're laughing or, or why, why you know, do you expect me to be ashamed or surprised or anything like that? I'm like, guys, I get beaten all the time. If I'm, in fact, if I'm only ever winning, then I'm I'm never going to be pushing myself. Um, but the thing that really got me was that by the end of the fight, this girl came up to me and she said, um, "I I was about she she was very breathless by the end. She had really gone all out for it, but her punches she was very much doing." Um, match rules so very light punches and stuff like that whereas at the time I was I wasn't you know I wasn't gasping for air at the end she said if we'd had to go on for much longer in a real fight I think you would have won and it was this weird moment where we sort of looked at each other and we both said we a huge respect for each other's skills like I wasn't embarrassed that she had won she'd won fair and square she was zippy as all hell she was so fast I could not block her um whereas you know and all I could think of is wow wow that's amazing and and all she could think of was she's 
she's not going down she's not stopping she's just still there holding up you know in a, in a real fight she'll last for longer than me kind of thing yeah um and I think that, that that is it's a brilliant thing when you do fight someone else of, you know, the same sort of skill level. And it's not about the, being embarrassed, you know, if you lose or anything like that. It's really about learning from one another. And it's a fantastic experience. It's really exciting. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, and obviously competition fighting is not like... Um, okay. It's not like... Yeah. It's not like a real fight. Um, <laughs> it's as close as I think you can get to having one safely. And yeah. it's good for that very purpose. Um, yeah. You know, I guess Irakumi, where it's knockout fighting, it's kind of mm. like, yeah, that's sort of the next stage on as well, if you like. But comparing it to, okay, comparing it to real fights I've had in real life, um, none of them lasted four minutes. They yeah. just don't. They barely last 30 seconds because yeah. someone gets the upper hand really, really quickly. Yeah, it really. It, it happens incredibly fast. Um, In fact, the most realistic fight, I think... That any of us will ever see on screen. <laughs> Jules said this, and I was like, "Oh my god, yes!" Um, it, it's it's the fight from Bridget Jones's diary. <laughs> I have literally seen blokes doing that. And it's kind of like I think in their head, it kind of looks like some weird anime type thing where you know buildings coming down, but from the outside, it's kind of like, "Oh, this is not good. This is I'm so embarrassed for you guys." <laughs> kind of yeah. And yet, that, that's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, I guess maybe some of our listeners will be wondering this. The question is, what is the best martial arts, Jules? The one that works for you. <laughs> yes, um, no, it is no a trick question. <laughs> uh, I think if you had asked me when I was more of a devotee of a specific style i would mm. have said that style i would have said oh it's karate karate is the best it had to be the best because i was investing so much time in it and the thing yeah. is it's simply not true karate is is great um mm. i think there are styles of kung fu that, that are great there are no really bad styles apart from go kanru or go kangaroo which is a pyramid selling scheme and you should absolutely not do that because they are not teaching you safe things um, or ha they're, they're teaching you that you can defend yourself when actually what they're teaching you doesn't have a lot of value is what I'm getting at mm, but aside yeah, from I... that no bad martial arts just bad instructors yes um, so yeah do your research if you're thinking of getting into martial arts do your research look at the different styles consider your own you know your own abilities your own you know body type and things like that if, if you're very very small you might not want to go into wrestling but then hell maybe you're super fierce and you really do want to go into wrestling no one's gonna stop you okay i mean i gotta say just be like the spider monkey <laughs> I, I really do enjoy um grappling and wrestling but i'm generally at a disadvantage and i generally come away with everything hurting it's Particularly now that I'm a bit older as well, my recovery time is not as fast as it was in my 20s, strangely enough. The thing is, so for those who don't know, obviously Jules is quite small. Her partner is humongous. And every now and again, Jill says, oh, yeah, we've just been doing some, you know, some like some martial arts practice. And you know, whenever I think of you guys wrestling, Jules is just like a backpack. What, like, like Yoda? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, it's a Yoda-like situation. 
<laughs> I'm I have so to say sorry. He, do, he does fling me around without a great deal of effort. But okay, this was this was over lockdown where we were making our own fun by doing BJJ together. I was mm. learning a the head and arm choke, and I did almost have him unconscious. And then a bit later on, he almost had me unconscious much more easily because he is actually a black belt in BJJ. Um, but we um. Afterwards, I was really, really giggling. He's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And then I, I just couldn't stop laughing. And then we, we started doing a, a, a new manoeuvre, a new set. And then he stopped and went, you haven't got enough oxygen going to your brain. That's why you can't stop laughing. And both <laughs> of us, and at another point, he was kind of like, I've got the elevator door thing, you know, with the blackness is coming in from the sides of your vision. Yeah. And I actually, I would say, you know, if you're going to learn BJJ, actually properly go to a club. Don't just mess around at home because a lot of you, unless you know the moves, you're probably not going to be able to do it anyway. But if you do know the moves, but not quite enough knowledge to have someone there who can judge whether you should stop and take a break or not, Mm. um, it can be quite dangerous because a lot of the chokes don't feel like you're actually being choked because they're cutting the blood off to your brain. (laughs) Anyway, it's very funny, but... But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a don't try this at home kind of thing. But yes, Madeline, Madeline does have a point. I do look a bit like a Yoda backpack in those scenarios. <laughs> um, well, I think that uh, we're going to have to wrap it up now. We've overrun a little bit, but um, I've certainly had fun talking about this. Yes, me too. Busting out uh, war stories. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And I'm going to really embarrass Jules now um, by recommending her second book, Lock and Key. Um, It'll have been out for a few weeks by now. In fact, I'm pretty sure that by the time this episode airs, um, book three of Parker and Blackthorn will be out. Yes. So there we go. I, I can I can thoroughly recommend both of them. Um, obviously, I read these over lockdown. I enjoyed them immensely. Um, I particularly like Lock and Key for a very particular reason, <laughs> which is um, Loch Ness Monster. Like, I'm all over that. I'm so excited by that. Uh, cryptid hunting and stuff like that. But also, Jules has actually used a couple of characters from the Kestrel Saga... In, in in lock and key. Yeah, Madeline lent me a couple of her, her characters and um, let me just run wild with them. And I did. I just seriously really ran wild with them. <laughs> she was like, it's okay, I've, I've done this, I've done that. And I'm like, yeah, go for it. Just, <laughs> just go for it. So for anyone who read the Stalking Leviathan anthology um, and read my short story, Kestrel and, and the Kryptonites, a couple of the kryptonites do show up in lock and key, so um, that was very exciting for me. The story itself is obviously incredibly engaging, um, love the characters. Like I said, cryptids, Loch Ness Monster, you just can't go wrong with that. Plus psychics, and yeah, seriously, just big ticks all around. Really, really enjoyable. The whole series has just been fantastic, um, so you guys are going to love it, I'm sure. And on that note, guys, oh, by the way, I should say it's called Lock and Key, but it, it's it's Lock as in like Loch Ness and Key as in Quay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my inner pun demon would accept yeah. nothing else. <laughs> Jules is being very punny. And on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye.
You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.